Well, brothers and sisters, if you would stand with me, if you're able, and turn to Habakkuk, starting a new series today. Habakkuk, you'll find it after Nahum and before Zephaniah. I'm not sure that's helpful at all, but <laughs> we'll read Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and will you not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Here's the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The word of the Lord from Habakkuk. And you can be seated, beloved. And we thank the Lord for you and Renee, brother. Grateful for you. Well, maybe you grew up uh, thinking that you couldn't ask questions in church. Or maybe from a tradition where you say, well, you know, we've everything, you kind of shut off the real world when you come to church and you lock it and you just do what you're told and it's no place for asking deep questions about life. And certainly it's wrong to ask any questions of God. See, if you come from that kind of view, I think we do a great disservice on a number of levels. I mean, you'll notice quickly that if we have that kind of approach where uh, when we think of God or we think of church, it's not a place for questions, it's going to immediately cut us off from our own experience. 
that you don't have to go very far in this life to uh, face some hardship and it occurs to you, you say, well, if God's very good and he's in control of all things and I belong to him and now life's so hard, uh, I think the appropriate response is, how do I get clarity in this? Uh, how are things going to add up? So we don't want to cut off what we experience from what we ask of the Lord. Or secondly, I think equally as, as troubling, is that if we have the approach that we can't ask the questions we want to ask, that it cuts off the life of the mind from the church. I mean, let's face it, I think a healthy disposition is one of curiosity, that God uh, allows us to occupy this incredible world where we have lots of questions uh, that many of us enjoy learning. I think that's a healthy thing. And so questions, that's the way God made us, not to say, well, that part of you, that, that part of inquiry, that part of curiosity, you just got to shut it off. Or thirdly, I hope you see from our book this morning, that having the idea that we can't ask questions before God is just plain unbiblical. Uh, we might even say anti-biblical, because today we meet a 7th century B.C. prophet, Habakkuk, who begins his book, whose book begins with a series of very difficult questions. And before you dismiss this, you say, as we joked, I think it's a book that takes longer to find in your Bible than it actually takes to read uh, at just three chapters. But, you know, before you say, what's this about? Why did I, I, I give my time to this today? You'll say there's a great relevance between Habakkuk's world of the 7th century B.C. and our world uh, today in Avon in 2023. That we don't have much on the man. Uh, we know his name from 1-1, right? The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So there's his name. No one's even for sure what that name means. Something like embracer, I suppose, as the grammarians tell me. But the one clue to timing we get is in verse 6 of chapter 1. That this group called the Chaldeans, who we know elsewhere from history is the Babylonians, the great empire uh, at this time in the ancient Near East, in Mesopotamia. And we can see that the Babylonians are kind of on the ascent, and we know that they wipe out the Assyrians in a famous battle uh, in 605 called the Battle of Carchemish. And if that hasn't happened yet, you want to put Habakkuk sometime in the late 7th century BC. The point being that God, in his economy, preserved this book for us today uh, for our comfort and for our rightly approaching our Maker. The point is, is that Habakkuk, like us, lived in times where things weren't quite adding up. And I think that's where we can begin today, is that the prophecy, uh, point number one, is that God's Word invites difficult questions. That this prophecy, if you've been familiar at all with this genre of God raising up uh, preachers in historical Israel to bring the people back, to have them think rightly about God, that a lot of the prophecies are, are direct addresses to the people, you know, like, hey, Judah, you know, pay attention. They're, they're announcements to the collective group. No doubt this is for God's people. But you'll say it breaks right in, in a kind of intimate moment. That it doesn't open with a, an address to the people at large, but rather you get the sense that you're in this intimate kind of prayer life of a man who's observing his world and saying, God, uh, effectively, are, are you going to do anything? Are you seeing the same things I'm seeing? And if so, what gives? So verse 2, this famous question that appears again, not just here, but in places like the psalm, but how long, Lord? How long is this stuff going to go on? How about the question why in verse 3, that many times in this book we're going to see, why, Lord? Why are you permitting this? Uh, 
In Habakkuk's case, what he's doing is he's looking on, and this is crucial at this point in the book, he's looking within God's people that this is a kind of inter-Israel debate, and he's saying, God, we've lost our way. Uh, We've made a mess of what you've done for us, and you just catalog the words, right? Look, violence, verse 2, iniquity, verse 3, later in verse 3, destruction, violence again, strife and contention, that God's people, rather than being marked by love and commitment to mission and unity and those types of things, what we find is there are really a, a lot that's godless. Uh, they've said no thanks to him. They've gone their own way. And because of this, Habakkuk's asking real questions. God, aren't you going to do anything about this immorality? Don't you see what's happening? Please do something. And so I hope in a way that, say, that invites us into, I think, a time where we're asking difficult questions. I mean, I suppose an immediate parallel to this would be something like, well, we, we look around, let's say, at, at the American church at large, not Providence Church uh, per se, but the American church at large, and you might be saying something like this, Lord, instead of the church being a place of like solidarity and, and comfort and hope, it's a place of, of dysfunction uh, and like where people go at each other. God, what are you doing? Um, others of us, you say, Hopefully not your story, but uh, statistics tell me that this is a reality in a church like ours, but really uh, that the church has been a place of abuse. That again, instead of being a place of like safety and openness and familial relations, then it's been a place that's deeply scarred people. What are you doing, God? Have we lost sight of you? I think more, even to the point uh, yet, uh, is how the American church has served as a kind of platform for individual speakers. You know the old saying that when, when the gospel went to the Greeks, it became a philosophy. When it went to the Romans, it became an institution. When it went to the Northern Europeans, it became scholasticized. But when it came to America, it became a business. You say, it turns out that you can use a kind of spiritual platform to do all kinds of things in our country and to create great wealth. And some of us have seen that and say, God, is, is this really the plan? Where are you? Do something. If I can press down a little bit more, you know what's very interesting about Habakkuk's opening is you see that twice repeated word, verse 2 and verse 3, violence. You know what the Hebrew word for violence is? Hamas. Very interesting. How long? How long, Hamas? How long is it going to be, God? You know, you might think violence widespread. Um, you know, I live in Avon. You would say, well, Avon's not a very violent place. It's quite peaceful. There aren't many dusts up, you know, at Detroit in 83. Uh, but then you say, you look at another lens, and it sure seems like we're becoming more violent that uh, violent crimes are way up in our major metropolitan area. Every weekend, there's a high school football game that is relocated because the under-18s will go at each other in a violent way. Um, This not to mention the kind of violence that is committed against uh, children in the womb, which obviously is championed by a large section of our society. And, you know, you have even very recently this weekend a very terrible shooting in North Olmsted. It's very close. Lord, what about all this violence? Where do your people fit? Are you seeing what we're seeing? Why aren't you acting? 
You know, I have other questions too. Maybe you can formulate your own questions for God. And maybe I think these would, would relate just where we are culturally. But, you know, say, why are so many people trying to destroy our social fabric? I mean, I have that question. Like, God, why, why are there so many people trying to see every relationship between a kind of oppression and power dynamic? Is this really tearing us apart? Is, is this the way we're going? Or how about this? Why do large sections of society deny obvious truths? You know, here I have in mind is the, the fundamental distinction between male and female, which we talked about for three weeks. To me, it's as obvious a distinction as light and dark. And I'm saying, God, really? Why does it seem still the same problem that the biblical writers had? of the prosperity of the wicked. You know, why is it, God, that we look on to the landscape and you see people that really hate you and they have these really comfortable lives, seemingly, and things seem to go their way, and yet we know really God-fearing people, and, and it seems, in, in many instances, good people, insofar as you define them, really do finish last. How about more pointedly in the church, if I may? Very difficult for me pastorally. No good answers here. But why do solid Christian couples struggle with infertility? I mean, you ever ask that of God? Wait a second, God. You say children are a gift from the Lord. You command us to be fruitful and multiply. You brought this couple together. They love and honor you. And this has not happened for them. And it's very painful. You couple that again with seemingly lots of people who are blessed with a child and say, no thanks. God, what are you doing? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? How about why do faithful saints, something to think about here for all of us, why do faithful saints tend to have their greatest trials near the end of their lives? It's really quite sad. You say you have people that walk with the Lord 50 years, 60 years, faithful, and then you have dementia, uh, death of an adult child, hard, hard things at the end. Why, Lord? Why do the same sin struggles still dog me as now a middle-aged man that dogged me when I was a young man? They say, Lord, I thought that I would have this sorted out by now, and yet I still grapple with these sin issues in my life. What about a prodigal, huh? You raise a child, uh, bring them to church, they know the truth, and off the rails they go. It's very painful. Wait a second, God. Where are you? What are you doing in the midst of your people? You know, I could uh, go on and on, but in graduate school, I was at graduate school with a guy named Neil, Nabil Qureshi. You might know Nabil. Wrote a, wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And Nabil and I were about the same age, and Nabil was going around telling you, as I said, convert from Islam, going around telling as many people as possible that they should follow the Lord Jesus, going into tough Muslim context saying, please repent, turn to Jesus. And he got diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer and died in his young 30s, leaving his wife and his young child. Now, I said, if I'm running the universe, <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, I would have taken me and left him. Uh, that's what I would have done, honestly. That would have made more sense. So the point being is all of us, if we're honest, we occupy this world. We, we see who God is and we look around. We have so many questions. And Habakkuk, in a way, validates those questions. He doesn't say, hey, let's just pretend everything I just said the last five minutes doesn't exist, okay? You don't bring that in. No, he says, that's honestly what we're confronting. So if I may make here a quick apologetic point, 
is that the kind of suffering and injustice that we all experience to some degree or another, say those are realities of life in a fallen world. Now those who say uh, there is no God or they fire God, think of where that leaves you. It leaves you in a state of, I think, what we call existential despair. So think of the worst possible thing in your life, whatever that is, and now to say, well, you know what? It's just, it's just bad genes. It's just bad luck. It, 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 that's the only thing you can say about it. Alternatively, if you are a Christ follower, if you trust in the God of the Bible through Jesus, then all of a sudden that those questions actually uh, you can even ask those questions, is the way that I'll phrase it. In other words, asking questions of good and bad and right and wrong and even why, don't they only make sense in a theistic worldview? Because otherwise, you just have random chance. So in a way, by raising the tough questions about morality and about right and wrong and the way things ought to go, as soon as you smuggle in that ought, this ought not be or this ought be, you smuggle in metaphysics. Because otherwise, there's just stuff. And I hope what we see that when suffering and, real, uh, suffering and injustice really happen, it's been overwhelming, my experience, is that the, the problem of evil is discussed in ivory towers by people who aren't suffering or have never really suffered. But when people, especially those who know the Lord, when they really suffer, they often cling to God rather than run away from him because the very predicament they're in, the questions that they have, best make sense in a world where there is a God to whom we can raise the things that we're really feeling. So Habakkuk's tough questions, God, what are you doing in the midst of your people, is not a godless disposition because he's asking God for real answers. Rather, what we find is a faith, as Anselm said, a faith seeking understanding. God, I have faith, this isn't adding up, and I don't understand, and this really hurts. What are you going to do? So God's word invites difficult questions. He invites us to live in the world that we really do, to observe it, to ask the tough things, to raise the questions before him, knowing that as we do so, that we really are talking to the God of the universe. So God's word invites difficult questions. Don't shut off your brains. Certainly don't shut off your observations. Now, how does the Lord answer these difficult questions? How long and why? Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So a few things about this. You'll notice how God responds, verse 5. He says, I am working. I am doing something. It's not if God says, I, I'm not seeing any of this, but rather he says, I am doing something. And why this is so crucial for the American church is this. You see, there's a lot of people that think God won't judge. There's a lot of people who think, well, you know, we see this world, we see all the violence and the things we talked about before, all these wrong things, but, you know, we all know it's just everybody in the end gets their piece of, piece of pie and everybody's a winner and all the things that, that we've done and all the, the, the embarrassing things, you know, God just, he's not going to deal with them. He can't deal with it. He won't, you know. They have a false view of that. But here time and time again, just like in Habakkuk's day, God says, I see the iniquity, and I am working, and I am going to deal with it, and I have dealt with it. That's how he enters in. But notice God's response here is going to verse 5 again. Astound Habakkuk, 
so to the point that he's not going to believe God. Now, why does he say that? Because the instrument of God's chastening his own people here at the beginning of the book is the pagan Babylonians. This is a very difficult thing. So, God's people have their problems. But the way that God is going to judge the iniquity within his people is by bringing about a godless people who's going to make their life really hard. And you see the nature of the Babylonians, the way they're described. First notice that they are, they are godless in the true sense of the word. Look at verse 11, right? That they're a mighty army. Then they sweep by like the wind. Again, go, talking about the Babylonian army. And they go on guilty men whose own might is their God. You see, in other words, what do they worship? Well, they, well, they worship their own strength. Uh, this is, you know, uh, third millennia. So they come right into, uh, or first millennia B.C., but uh, three 2,700 years ago, comes right into our modern situation, say, worshiping their own strength, that my idol is how I'm able to push other people around. How about verse 16? This is where the sweeping armies of the Babylonians are. There's an extended metaphor of a fisherman's net. In other words, the king of Babylon sends out his armies, and it's as if there's been a dragnet, and as a dragnet lifts up the fish. So the Babylonian army kind of wipes out all these men. And you'll notice verse 16, Therefore he, the Babylonian king, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. In other words, his god is his military might that the Babylonians are a godless people who love themselves. They are as well exceedingly violent. Verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. They annihilate all in their path. Again, you see modern warfare is not that different in the ancient world. Say wiping out vast, bloodthirsty armies of violent people. In other words, I think to summarize why Habakkuk would find this astounding is because God's saying something like this, or it appears something like this, that as bad as the people of God are behaving, there's a way worse people that's going to correct that problem. So Habakkuk, again, you kind of say something like this, God, where are you? Why aren't you acting? God says, I am acting. I'm sending the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, no, not that. Uh, That's not how I wanted you to answer. But say, how typical of us. God is working. He's not working on our terms. He's working on his terms. He's acting in an unexpected way. Now, a few uh, remarks about this, a warning and then an encouragement, okay, on this idea of the Babylonians being raised up by God to prune his own people. Firstly, we must be careful extremely careful applying this theology in the modern world because it mischaracterizes God and hurts a lot of people when we don't in fact know. Um, So, for example, when these hurricanes come, remember it distinctly, the hurricanes come in, they wipe out some city in the southeast United States, and then somebody uh, pretending to be a Christian gets on the TV and says, well, we all know you know, New New Orleans was an especially bad city. You, you know, I mean, Mardi Gras and stuff. You know, clearly, clearly God, you know, picked out that city and, and did the hurricane because they're, they're, those people over there are bad. Say so that's bad theology on a number of levels. Uh, we don't know that. 
Not to mention, who are we to say that anybody else is worse than us? I mean, Jesus saying, look at the plank in your own eye before the speck of sawdust in your other. In other words, if we go around saying bad things happen to other people because they're worse sinners than us, then we misunderstand the entire biblical anthropology about the fallenness uh, of us. So very, very cautious on God doing bad things to other people uh, to, to, to shape them. Rather, we're looking inwardly at our own hearts, and here's then the encouragement. So that's the warning. Uh, we take it from God's word. We don't apply it randomly uh, in common foreign affairs. But here's the encouragement, is that God uses remote groups, corrupt people, bad leaders. You, you choose the words. He uses terrible human decisions to actually maximize his glory and shape us to more mature followers. Now that should be a great comfort to us. You know, you think of Tuesday, the election. A lot of us are pretty anxious about that. We got some big things on the ballot in Ohio. I've talked a lot about issue one. How about issue two? Say in the 20-something states where cannabis has been legalized, you, you look at how many children have been hospitalized by eating a brownie or a cookie that's been laced with cannabis. It's serious things. Now, taking this kind of approach to say, God, we know what your will wants us to do and what is good and right and sober living and the promotion of societal good. However, should issue one and or two pass, we know somehow in your saving economy that you would use even a bad thing and a dangerous thing somehow to more shape your people to be more committed followers of you and in so doing um, bring us all the way home. And you'll notice that that kind of thing, a lot of people, if you come say to the men's breakfast or the women's Christmas dinner, a lot of people have that element in their testimony more often than not. It goes something like this, you know, I really hit rock bottom. It was the worst time of my life. Everything was going wrong. And yet in that moment, God became real to me, and I accepted Jesus, and I was set right, and I got my proper orientation in the world, and that was many years ago, and actually the worst thing in my life became the best thing. It's a little bit like that. This is the worst possible thing. God's people have lost their way. He's raising up a fierce Babylonian army, this godless people. Who wants to be you know, corrected by people who don't even know the Lord, a much worse people than that. However, God's using them and controlling all things to bring together those who are his, to, to allow us to be more committed to him, and in so doing, he'll win all those who are his. And we come then to Habakkuk's second complaint, because he's, he's just really, I think, beside himself. He said, Is, can this be right? Um, could God you use, look at the second part of verse 13, you remain silent. Can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, this worst kind of people is going to be the correction for, for what we're doing. But verses 12 and 13, I think, are profound on a lot of levels. Let's read them again. So Habakkuk to God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, that is God's people, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You say, why is that so crucial? Because Habakkuk, in the midst of his very real questions, of the most difficult things in this life, affirms 
the very character of God. He talks about God's power in the sense that he's everlasting, that God has no beginning, he has no end, that he's created all things, he's everlasting, the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that he's a personal God, hence the you shall not die. He knows that he's in the covenant people of God, that God is holy. You'll notice my holy one, God's perfect in all his ways. He doesn't make mistakes. He's not errant in his judgments. And then jumping down to verse 13 talks about God's perfect morality, that he's pure. He doesn't look upon this stuff uh, easily. So why this is key is because you have finally uh, what we could call the tension between what a believer knows and what he sees. Who do I know God to be? I know God's everlasting. I know he's my maker. I know he's holy. I know he's controlling all things. I know that he's pure. And yet, my life's so hard. What's going to win out? What you know to be true or what you're momentarily experiencing? And the way that this then ends up being resolved is that Habakkuk says, I'm going to to rest in what I know to be true, trusting that in God's good time, that the circumstances are ultimately going to be aligned in one singular truth. And so that's where we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, the kind of in this section, uh, the, the brief resolution, if I may. Habakkuk again, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me. That is what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, what he resolves to do is he affirms the character of God. He says, I'm going to elect to act as a watchman, which I think is crucial. Say, what's the difference between waiting and watching? Say, the Bible talks a lot about waiting, but watching's much more active. Uh, you can actually say there's an aspect of watching that's can be quite tiring, right? And that's what he says, I'm going to be a sentry. I'm going to be on the lookout, God, for how you work this out, because I know who you are. In my mind, it's not adding up, but I trust who you are, and I'm going to watch. I'm going to wait on your plan. You know what's interesting? We'll get next week to the fact of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Uh, God says, don't you worry about the Babylonians, because I'm going to judge them too. Now, we know from history, so the Babylonians are pretty tough all the way until 539 B.C. And there's a new guy on the block, right? Cyrus of Persia, you know? It's like Jim Croce, don't mess around with Jim. You know, it's like you could do one of those with the ancient empires, you know? So Babylonians are tough. 539 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia. And guess what happens to the Babylonians? They're wiped out. In other words, God says, I'm working. This isn't lost on me. I'm judging, and I'll take care of it. So will we be those who say, you know what? We actively watch as we trust God to work out what he's going to do. Now, all of us, I think we know where this is headed in the post-Christian or post-Christ event is to say, in a way, we have the luxury of hindsight in this, that God acted supremely in sending forth his Son into the world, into this mess, to be a, dare I, a victim of violence. To say, I'm aware of the violence and the strife and the contention, so much so that my, ever, my eternal son, I'm going to send into the world to take on flesh, to suffer on the cross for all of this stuff. So when we raise these questions, God, don't you care? Don't you see? Don't you see how much pain there is? Is there any hope? Are you going to do anything? The answer for the Christians is that he has, and he is, through Jesus. And so if today you're here and you're a Christian, don't be shy raising these big questions before God. 
say, I think it's healthy. That to be a Christian really is to have questions, I think. Or otherwise, you're not living in the real world. But to always keep an eye on this idea of being a sentry and a watchman, knowing that God very much has acted through Jesus, and that as we rest in him, as we receive him and trust him for the ultimate sufferer that he is, realizing that he did that for our sake and for all iniquity from all time, that he will guide us through the difficult seasons of life. And in the end, we'll see, Lord, look at that. You worked it all out. And maybe you're not a Christian today. Or maybe you'd say, you know, like a, like a cultural Christian. You say, well, I was born, you know, in, in Cuyahoga County, so what else would I be? Yeah, I'm here today, whatever. But re- receiving Jesus, you say, well, that's a different way of putting it. Say, I hope you see that these are difficult times. Again, you're not a Christian. How do you think things are going? Has uh, educational reform helped us? You know, you're just hoping on the next uh, Ohio budget or something? Something cosmetic? Or can you see that the deep questions of life can only be raised before our maker who controls all things? And that God did something about that by sending forth Jesus into history. That he died on the cross in our place for even the most embarrassing things that we did. And on this very day, you can say yes to Jesus, to say, I I receive him. There's no point in waiting on receiving Jesus. And then to say, I see now this world a part of that big divine drama. It all makes sense. God makes everything good. We've ruined it. He rescued us in Jesus, and now I can live for him and in him. And when all this stuff happens and all the big questions come, that I filter them through the grid of what God has already done. And not only then does life take on a kind of intellectual fecundity and life becomes more exciting, but you're set on mission to be an ambassador of the king. And so even today, again, cultural Christian, non-Christian, atheist, whatever you are today, say don't turn away from the call of the Lord to respond in faith, to be a part of his people, to be a student of his word, and to go forth in the great hope that we have in Christ. So church family, I have lots of questions. You have lots of questions. God welcomes those questions. God answers our questions, sometimes in an unexpected way, in very difficult ways. But he is working. And in the end, it's all going to be worked out. And our job now is to be students of the culture and the times insofar as that God has acted and we communicate Jesus into our times. What a great time. Habakkuk's day, our day. It is a great time to be a Christ follower. I'm so happy to be a Christ follower in this time because the stakes are high and the charge is great. And I think we're up for the task. So may God bind us together in love. May he commit this word to our hearts. May we talk about it this week. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your word through Habakkuk. Say a guy whose name we're not even sure what it means to be allowed in to his questions for you. Lord, help us not to fall under that view that cuts off our minds and our experience from you. We say, well, don't ask any questions of God and certainly not in church. Say, no, these are hard things. Um, How they add up? Well, they add up insofar as that you've acted in Jesus. That the thing in one moment that looks like you're not doing anything in the end can be the best possible thing. Help us to see the world in that way. And Lord, in these times where we really are... little northeast Ohio, increased violence, who would think? Strife, oppression, whatever it would be, to say, you know, you enter into those situations to see the hope of the gospel. So, Lord, may your spirit mature your church for Christ's sake.